Our Ventura campus will be joining us for the sermon this morning. Let's let them know we love them so much. Give them a big love. Ventura. And we are in the book of 1 Thessalonians. Let's open up there. 1 Thessalonians, we are in the fifth chapter. I'll be reading and preaching from the New American Standard Bible this morning. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. The title of this message and what we'll be talking about is Relating Well to One Another as a church. Relating Well to One Another. Incredibly important as God's people. We are called to be different from the world and the way that the world deals with each other in all sorts of circumstances. And so the text will help us think that through today. Relating well in the church. Start reading in verse 12, go to verse 15. Paul writes and says, But we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you, And have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction. And that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work. And live in peace with one another. And we urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with all men. See that no one repays another with evil for evil, but always seek after that which is good for one another and for all men. This is God's holy word. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the way that your word helps us to live with and relate to one another as Christians. Certainly it speaks to the way that we live in and relate to the world, but here how we in the church in a lot of ways are to relate with one another. And we just want to, want to be honest this morning and say we, we need help with that, Lord. We're often selfish and self-centered people, my, myself more than anybody. And we think about ourselves before others and we look for vengeance and we're impatient and all these things. And we just need your help, Jesus, to rightly represent you in our relationships and as your people, as your church, that we might experience the fullness of the life that you have for us, that there might be healing in our midst and restoration and reconciliation and moving forward, that we might be faithful witnesses in the world that needs the good news about Jesus who loves us and gave himself for us that we might have eternal life through the forgiveness of sins. We want to be good representatives of that in the way that we deal with each other. So Lord, please help us with these things. Please, God, anoint me now to teach and preach in a way that's faithful to your word, helpful to your church, and fruitful for your mission. And help us to hear and receive and obey. Help us not to think about how these things might relate to other people that need to hear it. Help us to hear it. Deal with our own hearts, Lord. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, Admittedly, the text is a little awkward for me this morning because it talks about appreciating and loving your leaders, of which I am one. 
So that makes it a little awkward, and it certainly could be self-serving if I were to take it that way. But I'll try not to do so. I will endeavor, as always, to be just faithful to what the Scriptures say, and I'll try not to bring my own insecurities into it. And yes, I have them. But the church has always needed some instruction, not only in how to deal with one another in general, but the church has always needed some instruction as to how to view and deal with its leaders. God has ordained that there are leaders within the church. We understand that. That's clear in scripture. But the church has always needed some help with that because of some of the prevailing cultural ideas. And we have a sort of set of prevailing cultural values that make it difficult for us to rightly relate to leaders in the church. We very much have a culture of celebrity and a culture of consumerism, right? Our culture loves celebrity, right? We all do. We love celebrity and there's TV shows and movies and gossip columns and we can follow them on social media and we just love it. It's something about our culture and if somebody has a little bit of talent or a lot of talent to throw a ball, we will pay them more money than any human should ever be paid. Here, you're good at throwing a pigskin ball. Here's $50 million. Somebody can wear a tight dress and sing somewhat well, we'll give them $100 million. And then suddenly we want to know what they think about politics and life and spirituality and all this stuff. We love to exalt them to this place. It's just part of our culture. We we do that. And then we love to tear them down. As much as we love to build them up as soon as the ball goes flat or the key goes flat, we can't wait to tear them back down. And we're posting about it and talking about it and it's all over the news. We've got this celebrity culture that is very much about exaltation and then pulling down. When we pull down one, we look for another and we're happy to applaud them. And we, we, we must admit To some degree, and it's not right, to some degree we import that prevailing cultural value into our Christianity and our church experience. We We have a wrong tendency to exalt leaders within the church, sometimes. To put them on pedestals where they ought not to be. And then we sometimes have that corresponding wrong impulse to tear them down. And a lot of that has to do with that second prevailing cultural value, which is consumerism. We are not only a celebrity culture, we are a consumeristic culture. We we can't escape that, right? Everybody panders to it. In our hand, we can get anything we want at any time. Give it to me with one click. And if I don't like that one, I can send it back for free and get another one. We are a consumeristic culture, right? It's... It's all, it's all around us. Everyone is pandering to what we want, moving toward our dollars by giving us what we feel it is will make our lives better. And oftentimes we must admit we import that consumeristic ideal into our Christianity, into the church experience, and it ought not to be. What I mean by that is we often arrive and say, okay, now what's in it for me? Are there seats for me or is it too crowded in here? 
Is the sermon going to be good for me? Is it going to make me laugh? Is it going to make me happy? Is it not going to be too long? I'm really, I'm really concerned about that. How's the conditioning of the restrooms? By the way, Pastor Britt, it was difficult to park here. You need to do something about that. We often just come in with like a what's in it for me consumer mentality. Now this is... Uh, exemplified or, or, or symptom of this is our proclivity to church hopping. That, that betrays, that shows forth our intense consumerism, right? What do we do as consumers? We say, well, I don't like the way that Taco Grande does it, so I'm going to Rudy's. Well, I don't like the way Rudy's does it, so I'm going to Oaxaca Fresh. Well, I don't like the way they do it, so I'm going to Taco Bell. No, you would never do that. But we do that same sort of thing with churches, right? We, we come in and the moment we dislike or don't get our needs met in some way or it's not right for us or we disapprove, rather than having this concept of being a local church called together by the Holy Spirit around the person and the work of Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters by the blood of Christ, instead of having that ideal where we come together as a unique witness in the world for the work of God and we stick together through difficulty, we often just... Go and come as we want. We, we church hop because we are consumers. There are sometimes legitimate reasons, but for the most part. So we really need the Bible to speak to us about how we view leaders because we have a, a wrong sort of celebrity culture, a wrong sort of consumer culture. And the original audience, this church in Thessalonica, this original audience, they had a certain prevailing culture that affected the way that they would think about their church leaders. They certainly had a cult of celebrity and they certainly dealt with some level of consumerism, nothing like ours, but they really were engaged in a slave culture. That's hard for us to relate to on on a grand scale. They were in the Roman Empire and over 50% of the population in the Roman Empire were slaves and they were an important part of the economy and they were an important part of life. I'm not saying it was good. I'm saying what it was like in the Roman culture, right? They were necessary for the household and they were necessary for business and they were necessary for commerce and for things functioning. And so there was just a a large proportion of slaves. And so everyone in that culture knew just how to deal with slaves. In fact, they dealt with them like tools, They didn't in any way love them or esteem them or appreciate them. After all, they were slaves. They knew how to think about those. Now here's here's the rub. Here's the difficulty. We'll remember that Paul was only in Thessalonica for a little while. You remember that? He got chased out of town pretty early on. So he got to teach the church here a few things, but not everything. So part of the reason why he's writing this letter is to expand on some of the things he had talked about. Now, I'm sure that Paul had anticipated his soon departure out of that city because he thus far had been chased out out of about every city he had been to. And so he certainly would have talked to the church about the leaders and the establishment of leaders and what that looks like within the church. And I imagine that he perhaps, I'm speculating now, didn't go too deep on it, but I'm sure he would have said a few things. And I'm guessing that he would have said a primary thing that was the overarching paradigm for Jesus as he viewed leaders in his church. You remember that time when James and John came to Jesus and they said to him, Matthew 20 and elsewhere, Jesus, we know that you're a king and you're coming into your kingdom. And when you come into your kingdom, we want to sit on the right 
and the left. Jesus, you're a king. We want to be the guys. We want to have a good place in the kingdom. Who can blame them? We all think that way. Very much a part of our American mentality of climbing up the ladder, of fighting for position, of making sure that we secure our place of influence and authority and power. And that's all they were doing. Jesus, we, we want to have those, those places in your kingdom. And Jesus said something that was revolutionary. He totally shifted. He totally brought something brand new into the perspective of how we ought to esteem and think about leaders within the church. Jesus responded to them by saying this from Matthew 20. But Jesus called them, the disciples, to himself and said, now you know, because they knew this, this is how they were acting. You know that the rulers of the Gentiles, right, the rest of the world that wasn't God's people at the time, lord it over them and their great men exercise authority over them. Pause right there. Jesus was saying, you guys are acting just like the world around you. I I get that. I'm not expecting too much different from you at this point. That's how the world is. It's leaders lord it over those that they are leading. That means they're they're heavy-handed. They're authoritarian. They get their way, and if they have to do so by coercion or force, that's just the way that they do it. That's not so different from our culture. And their great men exercise authority over them. Heavy-handed, top-down, authority, power structure-oriented leadership. He says, yeah, that's how you guys are acting right now, James and John. And then he says, but it is not this way among you. You meaning followers of Jesus. Whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. Pause right there. That was countercultural. That was weird change, world changing. That was weird and strange and different. Jesus says, I know exactly how the world functions. I know it's about power and authority and influence and fighting your way to the top, but I am bringing a different kingdom, a new kingdom. And leadership is meant to look different in my kingdom. Whoever wishes to become great is gonna become the servant. Now they all had a paradigm for that. They all knew what servants and slaves looked like. Jesus is using an analogy here. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. So James and John, you guys are trying to claw your way to the top. You're trying to preserve for yourself some positions of authority and influence. But this is a different thing, my kingdom. And those who are leaders in my kingdom must view themselves as servants of my people. Servant leadership, we call it within Christianity. Servant leadership. And then Jesus, of course, is the king, functions as the ultimate example of this. He says, just as the son of man, referring to himself, did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. That's why Jesus, the night before he went to the cross, knelt down and washed the filthy feet of the disciples. He took the place of the servant. That's what the servants did in the household. It's not what the leaders of the household did. That's what the slaves did. And so Jesus gets down on his hands and his feet and he washes the dirty feet of the disciples and then he says to them there in the book of John, I have given you an example. As I have have done to you, so you're to do to one another. And then, of course, Jesus went to the cross as the 
ultimate show of self-sacrifice, servanthood, if we want to talk about it in those terms. Right, Philippians chapter 2, Jesus humbled himself to the point of a slave, even to death upon the cross. So, if you're Paul, and you're teaching this to a first century church in a place like Thessalonica in the Roman Empire, and you say, now, the leaders are to be like slaves, then there's a certain paradigm, there's a certain set of cultural values that would have caused them to treat the leaders in a certain way. Different from ours, we have a bent to sort of treat them like celebrities, puff them up and then tear them down. We have a a tendency to treat them like dealers in religious goods and services. Okay, give me what I want, and if you don't, I'll take my business elsewhere. They perhaps had a proclivity to treat them as all slaves in that culture were treated. You do what I want when I want. And so this needed a little bit of clarification. And so that's why Paul is writing in verse 12, I believe, and saying, but we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you. Right? There's that slavish sort of language. Those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you. They're diligently laboring slavish, but they have charge in the church. That means to lead, that means to rule, that means to have some sort of authority, but it's servant leadership. Salient phrases and have charge over you in the Lord. We expect that our leaders in the church are not there because they clawed their way to the top. We expect that they're not there because they had the best voice or the best gifts or just unique opportunities or just that's what they wanted and so they went after that. It says those who have charge over you in the Lord. What we hope for, what we expect is that leaders in the church are those who have been called by God. Lord have mercy on us. It doesn't always work out that way. But that's the hope. That's the ideal. He's talking about leaders here who have a servant attitude. They labor diligently among you, but they do lead, have charge over the church by the calling and empowering of the Lord. And it says, and they give you instruction. The word there is admonishment for instruction. That means that good leaders are willing to tell you what you don't want to hear. Now, our consumerism says, well, but I only want to hear what I want to hear. But good leaders in the church are meant to admonish. To admonish means to warn about wrong directions or bad behaviors and to point in right directions and right behaviors. These leaders are meant to tell us sometimes what we don't want to hear. Admonishment. And so what what the text is saying is that for the leaders in the church, we ought to appreciate them. That's what it says. And then in verse 13, and that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work and live in peace with one another. Leaders in the church who are called by God and work hard and teach and warn and serve are meant to be appreciated. 
and esteemed in love. The New Living Translation translate verse 13. Show them great respect and wholehearted love because of their work. As opposed to the prevailing way that culture deals with slaves. Not esteeming, not appreciating, not loving. Tools to get something done. As opposed to the way the prevailing culture deals with celebrities and dealers in goods and services. Don't see them that way. Appreciate them. Show them respect and wholehearted love because of the work that they do. Now, it's awkward for all of us. Slightly uncomfortable for you, slightly uncomfortable for me because here I am, one of the leaders talking about this. Forget about it. What we ought to have in the church is a culture, a real ethos of appreciation, respect, and love. It's not only for the leaders. Shouldn't we have that for one another in general? And shouldn't we have that for specifically those who are serving in the church in a regular basis? Maybe it's not a leadership sort of way. But what about Peter who showed up before 6 a.m. this morning and started making coffee for the first service and got everything cleaned up in the kitchen and made the coffee and set it up and then I watched him go out to the parking lot and straighten out the parking lot and get the cone set up and set out the signs and then I saw him out there greeting people as they came in. What about the worship team that got up before 5 a.m., 4.30 in the morning, some of them driving from Ventura, some from Santa Barbara to get here at 5 a.m. and spend a couple hours rehearsing and practicing and giving themselves to serving us as a church that we might just begin to worship. What about Doug, who's been shining the chrome on the urinals all week? What about the blessed brothers and sisters who instruct our kids in the Lord and teach them to pray and lead them in worship so that you families can come and just comfortably with confidence check in your little babies and your older kids. What about Bo who's already taught our youth, our youth pastor on Wednesday night and Thursday night and now he's teaching our kids again. What about his leadership team? I mean, I could go on and on and on, but shouldn't we have a culture that is contrary to the world because it's not based on slavish sort of master mentality and it's not based on celebrity exalt them and tear them down and it's not based on consumerism, do what I want or I'll take my business elsewhere. It's based on humble appreciation, respect and love. Isn't that the way the church ought to be? That's not the normal stuff of our world. That's the way that we ought to be. And so there's an inward reality to that. And then there's some outward realities to that. The inward reality is that we so need to cultivate and keep our heart before Jesus Christ that we make it all about him and not about the others. You know, it's hard when someone's six foot six with a big beard and a loud mouth to not make it a little bit about him. But if you could see the glory of Jesus Christ next to this oversized goon, you wouldn't think anything about him. 
It's hard sometimes not to think about the 12 elders in the church and then the 40 people on staff and then the hundreds of people who are serving and not sort of make it about them and what they did and what they failed to do and where they're doing good and where they're not doing good and the way that they offended me and the way that they let me down. That happens all the time. But I have discovered inwardly, the more I make my heart and my mind and my life and my affections about Jesus, the easier it is to be about people. Can I get a witness? Right? So this this inward call is to keep our hearts in this wonderful Christ-honoring place where it's so about Jesus that we're, we're just easily able to just appreciate, respect, and love people who are called by him and doing their best and endeavoring to serve you. After all, it's okay. Jesus is the senior pastor. Jesus is the number one leader. There's no org chart with a guy on top. The only one on top is Jesus. And he's not a guy, he's a king. And under him is a more flat leadership structure. The leadership that we practice here at Reality is team-oriented leadership, a a plurality of leaders. Yes, there's going to be a quarterback that calls some plays. Yes, there's going to be a coach that gives some instruction. Yes, there's going to be this and that, but there's always going to be mutual submission, accountability, deference, a team-oriented approach. So that we as the church, when we really look upward and we keep looking upward, the one at the top is Jesus. It's the way it's meant to be. The more we can keep that in our hearts, the less critical we become. I mean, sometimes you tell us that the coffee is too weak. (laughs) I know. We want to know. Sometimes you tell me that the sermons are too long. I know. I know. The music's too loud. The lights are too low. I know. I know. And that's okay. But what if, what if, what if, what if, what if? What if we appreciated, showed respect and love as often as we commented, criticized, or complained. Just saying. (laughs) Just saying. The more we as a church put Jesus in the center, the more we can endeavor to do that. So that's the the inward reality. The, The outward reality of that is sometimes we need to do outward things to make the inward person obey. You, you, You know what I'm talking about? Right, like sometimes it's evening time and dinner has been done and my wife is a glorious cook. Dinner is finished, we we ate dinner and there's a pile of dishes. You know when my wife cooks, the dishes are not like in a little concentric area, they're everywhere. It's just a gift she has. They just (laughs) go everywhere and she uses many, many, many dishes. All the food fit on one plate but 94 dishes to make it. And you know, it's a little bit of a test of the wills. We both sit down on the couch there and, oh, 
long day. And she's like, oh, I know, long day with a baby. Fifi was fussy all day and chasing around and this and that and driving Isaiah to and fro. And I'm like, oh, that's nothing. (laughs) The people at the church all day, I'm exhausted. There's nothing in me that wants to get off the couch and wash the dishes for my wife and family. No, no. The Spirit is just calling me to do the... None of that. I don't feel it. Nothing in me wants to do it. But sometimes when I get my big body off the couch and walk it to the sink and start washing dishes... My heart follows. My mind follows. Suddenly there's, there, there's joy in serving my wife and serving my son who usually does the dishes. I love you, son. <laughs> Sometimes, you know, it's second set and we're, we're, we're worshiping here. We're supposed to be worshiping and we're thinking everything about the glory of Jesus Christ and giving him the praise that is due his name. Can anybody... You know what I mean? We're thinking about this and that and the person next to me smells slightly and the clothes that I forgot and this and that and where am I going for lunch and all these other things and it's too loud and I don't like this and all this stuff. Sometimes when your heart is just everywhere and your mind is all over the place, the best thing to do is put your body in a right place. I will kneel before the Lord, my God and my maker on my face before Jesus, hands lifted up. Sometimes when we do obedient things with the outward, the inward begins to follow. Does that make sense? So maybe we need to go up to the coffee guys today and say, hey, thank you. Maybe we need to think about the prayer team who's up here and they have needs just like you, but they'll come up during the second sentence. Thank you. Maybe we need to go to the worship team, Dom and Emily and the rest of the team and thank you. Maybe the people out in the parking lot. Just developing what ought to be inherent in the people who are filled with the Holy Spirit. Appreciation, great respect, and love. Does that make sense? And then he says, and and, and be at peace with one another. Be at peace with one another. And then at verse 14, he turns to all of us, the whole congregation. He says in verse 14, and we urge you, brethren admonish the unruly, define that in a moment, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, and be patient with all men. And see to it, verse 15, that no one repays another with evil for evil. Admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak. Admonish the unruly. That word there, unruly, means a lot of things. But I I think here in the text, it's referring to undisciplined Christians. You know that the Christian life is a life of discipline, right? The Christian life is a life of discipline. To follow Jesus is to be disciplined in certain ways at all times. In fact, I would say... You can disagree, but I would say that there is no faithful following of Jesus without a great deal of discipline in the life of the believer. After all, he does call us his disciples from whence we get the word discipline. So the Christian life requires some disciplines, some self-discipline. 
by the power of the Holy Spirit, to be sure. Because we've been given a new nature through conversion, to be sure. And yet still some self-discipline. They would say no to certain things. And then yes to other things, such as some Bible reading discipline. It's a discipline. Some prayer time discipline. That's a discipline. Some disciplines concerning generosity. Some disciplines about gathering together. Some disciplines about love. All these disciplines are included in the Christian life. And all of them as a response to what Jesus has done for us. God has been so generous with me and giving his son on the cross to die in my place that I might be forgiven of my sins and have eternal life. He's been so generous in his love to reconcile me who was once an enemy of God and to bring me as a beloved son that I then can endeavor to be generous toward others. Not in a celebrity sort of way when they perform well. Not in a consumer sort of way when it furthers my cause and not in a slave-oriented sort of way. Sort of belittling here, here's a dollar. But in a Christ-form, disciplined sort of way, because God has been generous with me in Christ, I then as a Christian have a discipline of generosity because God has forgiven me so much in Christ it then is a discipline of the Christian life to forgive as we've been forgiven. Not in a haphazard when it feels right, when they've groveled enough, when they've made restitution, when they've apologized enough, when I've had time to get over it, but a forgiving discipline because I have been forgiven. This is tough stuff. There is no faithful following of Jesus without a prayer and scripture discipline in your life. It's how we hear from God. It's how we talk to God. The Christian life is one of discipline. So the text is saying, admonish the unruly, the undisciplined. So on occasion, we notice about ourselves and our brothers and sisters, wow, they're kind of living an undisciplined area, life in this area. And so I'll admonish them. Remember what admonish means? Remember that? Nobody does. Not an effective preacher. It means... Colloquially, sometimes to tell people what they don't want to hear. Hey, brother, you need to work on that. I notice you haven't read your Bible in 14 years. You should, you should work on that. <laughs> sometimes we admonish. It means to warn about wrong behaviors and wrong direction and point to right behaviors and right direction. The best way that we point to right behaviors and right direction is in modeling them. The best way that we warn about wrong behaviors and wrong directions is to do so lovingly. We don't do so condemningly. We don't endeavor to do so as sin sniffers. It's not a call for sin sniffing. It's a call for mutual love within the body of Christ. It says, here's some areas where you may grow. Admonish the unruly. Encourage the faint-hearted. Faint-hearted there means discouraged. Anybody ever get discouraged? Raise your hand. <laughs> Most of us. A couple of you know. God bless you. <laughs> this isn't for you, though. You don't need to worry about this. 
But for those of us that get discouraged, we need to be encouraged. And it's God's desire, the will of Christ, that there'd be great encouragement found in the body of Christ, in the church, for the days of discouragement. I think you guys are generally good about that. But real encouragement, real love and help for the faint-hearted. In the same way, it says in the next phrase there in verse 14, help the weak. The idea is to stand by, help the weak. We don't have a culture that's into that. We, we pay a lot of lip service to that, but we've aborted almost 60 million babies. I don't know that our lip service about helping the weak means much. But in the church, there's supposed to be a value of helping the weak, defending those who can't defend themselves, standing by, caring for those who need help. And be patient with all men. Gosh, that's hard. I'm an impatient man. It can be really challenging. All of this stuff, once again, is a response to the way that God has loved us in Christ. We were living unruly lives. Jesus saved us and gave us a new nature that's alive to God and and, and, and inclined to following him. Right? We were discouraged in the weight of our sins and the penalty thereof and the condemnation of those things. And Christ has come along and forgiven us when we repent of our sins and put faith in him. We've been greatly encouraged. We are sometimes discouraged by the difficulties of this world. And Jesus said, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I will be with you always. And he's with us, present, loving us. And so in the ways that we have been encouraged by God, we encourage others. Help the weak. He's met us in our weakness. I was sinking in miry clay and he grabbed me and put my feet on the solid rock. He has upheld me with his righteous right hand. The son holds me in his hand and the father as well. As the mountains mountains are round about Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people. Patient with all men. Just let me ask you, has Jesus been patient with you? Someone say amen. Amen. Jesus is patient with us. And so out of these realities that we've experienced because of of the love of God in Christ, we then are called to be this way toward one another. And I'll tell you what our consumerism does with this. Our consumerism says, well, nobody's doing that for me, right? Show of hands, who was thinking that? Just kidding, don't show your hands. A couple of brave folks here toward the front. Jeff, God bless you, brother. Jeff was like, I was thinking that. I know, we all feel that way. In a, in a perfect church, everyone would come in and they'd be falling over each other with appreciation, respect, love, helping the weak, encouraging the faint-hearted, patience, no problem, don't worry about it, admonishing them unruly. There just there wouldn't be any of that need left. And yet we find ourselves with a lot of need. And when we generally go with that because of our consumer form mentality is, well, nobody's doing this for me. Let me tell you, brothers and sisters, if your ideal is to wait to do good things for people until they do it to you, please don't ever get married. (laughs) Right? It's it's not the way we go. I understand. Your needs weren't met. Mine too. I, I, I get this. 
But, but the weight of the text is not to cry about it. The weight of the text is to live into it. Well, I need encouragement. Nobody encouraged me. I'm going to encourage some people. I was weak and nobody stood by me, but I'm going to stand by some people. I was unruly. I didn't have a mentor. I didn't have a guide. I'm going to be a mentor or a guide to someone else. And people were impatient with me. The moment I blew it, they threw me out on the street, but I'm, I'm going to be patient with others. That's, that's what Christ is calling us to. It's not formed by the behavior of others. It's formed by the finished work of Christ on the cross. And then we got this really tough phrase, and this is where we finish. Verse 15. See to it that no one repays evil for evil. The Bible's rife with this sort of saying. It's all over the place. Look at Proverbs. Do not say, I will repay evil. There's just a really clear command. Now, pause right there. How many of us, maybe just me, I'll deal with myself. I will confess that oftentimes when evil is done to me, my thoughts are consumed by how can I do something back to them? Is it just me? It's just me, isn't it? When my reputation has been slighted, when my feelings have been hurt, when I have been less than valued, often my first thoughts are, well, how can I do the same sort of thing to them? And you know this, you know that Scripture and Jesus calls away to that, from that. It calls to something higher. And it tells us explicitly, don't say, I'm going to repay evil. I'm going to get even. Now look at the wonderful promise of what we get to do. Instead, wait for the Lord and he will save you. Instead, put it in the hands of Christ. I didn't get the recognition. I didn't get the place. I was slandered. I was overlooked. I was abused. I was hurt. We all were. What we want to do in our flesh is get even. The opportunity of what we get to do in Christianity is trust Jesus. It's a better way. Wait for the Lord. He will save you. Do not say, thus I shall do to him as he has done to me. I will render to the man according to his work. Look what Romans says here. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, here's a nasty little phrase, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. So far as it depends upon you. You see, what we generally do is we wait around for them to do something. When, again, when they grovel enough, when they make enough restitution, when they have apologized enough, when they've changed enough, when he's been transformed enough, then... That's not what it says. So much as it depends upon you. That's a, that's a high call. That means we need the help of the Holy Spirit. Be at peace with all men. Verse 19, never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. Now some of you are happy. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. Leave room for the wrath of God. It says that. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Hallelujah, brother, now you're preaching. (laughs) It says that. I mean, don't take your own revenge and trust it to the Lord. So, when we return evil for evil, insult for insult, when we look for, when we insist on 
leveling the play, evening the score. What, what we're really doing is we're refusing to trust God. He says right there, vengeance is mine. When God says something is mine, you say, okay. <laughs> vengeance is mine. To insist on our own vengeance, as I often do, is to refuse to trust God with that which he has claimed as his own. It's a real issue. I'll tell you why we do that. We do that because God is too darn nice. He's too merciful. He's not going to do enough to him. That's what Jonah was saying. God called Jonah to preach to the Ninevites and Jonah didn't like the Ninevites. And he knew if I go and preach to them, they will turn from their sins to God and he'll forgive them and be nice to them. I'm not going. That's what he said. And he was totally right. God is way more merciful than we're comfortable with. We're really comfortable with it when it's his mercy toward us. Oh, thank you, God, for your mercy. Makes us a little uncomfortable to trust God with those who have hurt us. I know. I I know. I feel it too. I know. But that's what we're called to do. Vengeance is mine. He's going to deal with all of his people rightly, justly, and mercifully. He loves mercy. God is merciful. So this is a high calling. And I struggle with these things. But I know what you know. The more I fix my heart and my mind and my affections on the person and the kindness and the grace and the glory of Jesus, the more we move toward these things. And that, brothers and sisters, is an issue of discipline and the help of the Holy Spirit. Discipline, pressing into Christ in a regular, disciplined sort of way, really pursuing after him, and the help of the Holy Spirit. You know that Jesus said the job of the Holy Spirit is to exalt Christ. We can trust the Holy Spirit to exalt Christ in our hearts and minds. But this requires real effort on our part. And what's at stake? Well, everything is at stake. To some degree, our well-being and our harmony and our being at peace with one another. And so us being a healthy church, that's at stake. What's at stake? Hurt people coming in that need love, not getting it. What's at stake? Our witness in the world of being a new society, a different culture, a different family brought together by the blood of Jesus Christ. I mean, so much is at stake. The only reason we can do this is because we are called to be imitators of God because we have been loved by God and brought near by Christ, transformed to have a new nature that's alive to God and alive to righteousness, filled with the Holy Spirit to pursue and to walk in these things. May God help us to do so 
for the glory of Jesus. Lord, thank you for the help of your word today and the hope of your word. We really need you as a church to teach us to seek after that which is good for one another. To deal rightly with each other and with leaders and servants in the church. We just, we need your help. And so now as we move into a time of praise and worship and reflection and thinking about these things, Holy Spirit, come and guide us in our thoughts and our feelings. Bring us to the love of God. Overwhelm us once again with the way that we are loved by God. Bring us near because we have the forgiveness of sins through Jesus Christ. Make that wonderfully real to us today. Flood us with your mercy and grace. That we then might turn outward a little bit and push that toward others. Your love and grace and mercy. That it would flow forth from our lives as they're changed by the power of your Holy Spirit and the truth of your love and the work of Christ on the cross. Thank you for the prayer team that's up here today. Lord, anoint them as they pray for us. Make us bold to go get prayer. Make us bold to do obedient postures of worship here on the carpets before you to come and kneel and bow and just sit and rest in your presence. And thank you for the Lord's table where we can come and partake of communion as Christians, remembering the cross, rejoicing in Christ given for us and his resurrection and his soon return. Thank you for these things, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.